Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 13th, 2017. Light episode today. We are going to consider further implications regarding the commandment, Thou shalt not murder. How does it affect abortion? How do we treat our neighbors? Things like that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, doctrine is teaching, and uh, we demonstrate that the steady diet of teaching and doctrine that's put out there for consumption by Christians, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. In fact, what God's Word really says is far more important, it's more compelling, uh, more engaging than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Unfortunately, so many people who call themselves Christians are not actually hearing the Word of God. And uh, so this is a case study in contrasts and comparisons, and part of the contrast and comparison requires you to listen to uh, you know, teaching that intentionally attempts to actually work through biblical texts and uh, teach what Scripture reveals with some degree of depth. That's kind of the idea. So we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments as we're working our way through the book of Exodus. We're still on the commandment that says, Thou shalt not murder. And uh, we consider some of the further ramifications regarding that commandment. And, of course, as always, since uh, this is uh, recorded as a live, you know, recorded live as a... um, Sunday school at uh, the congregation that I serve, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota, uh, there there are questions that are posed, and so we we do go down some bunny trails. But let's get to it. Here's today's lesson as we consider the further implications of thou shalt not murder. Here we go. Lord Jesus, again, as we open up your word, we ask that you would send your spirit. Open up our hearts, our minds. Help us to rightly understand what you've revealed there so that we may correctly confess and believe what you have revealed for us, as well as to do what you've given us to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of a review. We've been wandering with the children of Israel. We're back into that story. They have been set free from slavery to a false god king in Egypt. God has baptized them in the Red Sea. By the way, if you want to know the cross-reference, how we know that the Red Sea was a baptism, the cross-reference on that is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The opening verses make that connection. We're at Exodus 20. Children of Israel have arrived at Mount Sinai. And after arriving at Mount Sinai, keep in mind, before they got there, God began to feed them with the manna from heaven. And arriving at Mount Sinai, God now speaks to the children of Israel and gives them the Ten Commandments. And you're going to note that their reaction to receiving the Ten Commandments is along the same lines as what we read in our Old Testament text for the sermon today, 
where God's presence shows up and the mountains quake and the earth trembles and God causes his name to be known among his adversaries and they also tremble are in great fear. This is what God's law does. But let's review what the text says. God spoke these words. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath that is in the water underneath, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. On the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. This is the commandment we're really drilling in on today. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. And they trebled and stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So you'll note that being in the presence of God, while there's peals of lightning and thunder crashes, and he's saying, Thou shalt not and thou shalt not, that is such a terrifying experience that you're going to note that nobody really wants to have God speak to them anymore. Please don't let God talk to us. You talk to us, Moses, but not him. And this is God, when he's preaching the law to us, what does it do? It scares us, it terrifies us, it convicts us, it makes us realize just how far short we come. Notice that the Ten Commandments, upon hearing them, didn't make everyone sit there and go, yeah, hey, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm actually doing kind of better than I thought. Yeah, that's what God's law does. Just convicts you of your sin. Totally convicts you of your sin. Now, we've been doing a drill down into the fifth commandment. And we noted last week how the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, requires us to not only not put a knife into the chest of our neighbor. Mark is very happy that I didn't put a knife in his chest today. Good. But it's, it's far more than not murdering your neighbor. This text, this commandment requires us to answer the question that Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? And answer that question in the affirmative. And then if you ask the question, who is my neighbor? The answer that this text and all of the other passages of scriptures that are cross-referenced reveal is that every human being, friend or foe, somebody you like or somebody who hates your guts and wants you dead, we are to even look after their own needs. So if they're, if they're breathing and they have a pulse and they're made in the image of God, regardless of what they feel about you or whether or not they want to kill you, they are your neighbor and we are to look after them. Cross-reference on this that helps us out tremendously is Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, notice bodily need, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Notice it doesn't say fellow believers, it says enemy. For by doing so, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not over, be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with 
good. So you can see the extent to which this fifth commandment really applies. Which kind of, let me give you another text then that I think is also very helpful here. So in looking at this, here's Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This all falls under the thou shalt not murder. So those who are mute, you, you look out for them and their rights. Those who are poor and needy, you defend them, you help them. That's the idea. This is what God desires for us to do. This is how our good works are done in this way. And this falls under the category of fifth commandment. You're sitting there going, I had no idea that not murdering my neighbor also then required me to consider the needs of the poor and the rights of the poor and the destitute and the mute. But that's exactly what this text is saying. Real quick, we're gonna, we started a little bit of this last week, but we have to consider how this commandment, the fifth commandment, then plays out in society as a whole. We need to remember that God has created and preserves and protects all life, that God is caring, He's compassionate towards all that He has made. And because of that, he calls us also to be. So we are to reflect as Christians God's mercy and his compassion towards other human beings. And so it's important for us to realize that God has given special dignity, or you can think kind of a special worth and protection then for every human life from conception. Over and again, I hear people who are pagans or somebody who's, you know, some doing weird things with the biblical text that they believe that somehow an unborn human being is just a blobby mass of non-human tissue or something. This is not the case. Scripture is so clear on this. From conception onward, we are to protect every human life. God has created humanity in His own image. God's Son became a man and shared our human nature. God has redeemed every human life By the holy precious blood of Christ, therefore every human life is precious to God and should be precious to Christians as well. Now, a little bit more law. Let's take a look at Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, this is after the flood. And after the flood, God begins to lay down, if you would, the basis for governmental authority and how the governments are to work. And he places this left-hand kingdom commission, if you would, in the hands of human families. But here's what God says to Noah's family after the flood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So you note that taking another human life is, well... Big deal in God's sight. And so we are not to take life. And if we find a gal who's pregnant among us, then we are to forgive her for her sins if she's penitent and do everything to support her and her soon-to-be-born child. And if we know anybody among us who has made this grave, terrible decision and sinned against God and against their own child by taking their own life, we are to remind them of the mercy of God and remind them that this is not the unpardonable sin. Each and every one of us has sinned against God in terrible and grievous ways. And the reality is is that we, each of us probably knows more than one person who may have made a decision like this. So we recognize that it is a sin but the law doesn't get the final say for the penitent. The gospel does. We do not want to cause our neighbors to despair of God's grace and mercy, especially women who are burdened with the guilt that goes along with a choice like abortion. This is where law and gospel come to bear. It's a serious topic, but nonetheless it has to be addressed straight up. Now, a text I find helpful in talking about how human life begins at conception is one that we are going to hear in a few weeks, in the book of Luke, chapter 1. In this text, we 
see something kind of amazing happen. The angel Gabriel has appeared to the Virgin Mary and told her that she will conceive and bear a son. Mary has kind of scratched her head and said, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. She ended up heading off to go spend time with Elizabeth, who was at that time pregnant with John the Baptist. Something kind of amazing happens in those in this text. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, Mary's pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant via the natural means through her husband, Zechariah, and she, at the moment, is carrying John the Baptist. Mary, the virgin, is pregnant with the Son of God, Jesus. Something fascinating happens. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And you'll note that she goes on to say, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now notice, Elizabeth thinks that Mary at this point is already the mother of her Lord. doesn't say potential mother. And you'll note that John the Baptist, if you look at the prophecies regarding him, that he was going to be the forerunner of Christ. When did John begin his work as the forerunner of Christ, pointing people to Jesus? Right here. In fact, the Old Testament says that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb. So you'll note that in this text, it says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I think the right way to understand it then is that John the Baptist, just in merely being in the presence of Christ, the one he was to be the forerunner for, he's filled with the Spirit, leaps for joy, and he's so overflowing with the Spirit that Elizabeth can't help it as well. She too is filled, and everybody is talking about the unborn Jesus. John the Baptist begins his work of pointing to Christ before he's even born. Now, if that is an an argument for life begins at conception, I don't know what does. Because here we have John the Baptist beginning his prophetic work in utero. That's a big deal. And by the way, if John the Baptist can begin his work in utero, can infants be given the gift of faith by God? Absolutely. Of course, that's the idea. Now, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, also is a fascinating text, which is wonderful, because you can see this is the calling of the prophet Jeremiah. I'll start in verse 4. Now, the word of Yahweh came to me, Jeremiah is writing in first person, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Who does the forming in the womb? Don't sit there and say, science, God does it. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Hmm. Psalm 139, also great text. We're going to look at a few verses in here. Starting at verse 13, psalmist writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Hmm. So you'll note, again, this affirms God is the creator, and he is the one who's doing the creative work when we were being formed in our mom's wombs, and that we were already precious in his sight even before we had 
taken our first breath. This then, note the dignity that God himself gives to the unborn. He knows them. He's forming them. They are precious in his sight. That's the idea. That dignity, because they are made in the image of God like every one of us, we are to protect them like every other human being. The other side of this, where do they come up with the argument that, you know, if the child isn't wanted, wouldn't it be a terrible thing to have them born? Yeah, this is a it's a it's a lame argument. Yeah, I how many countless numbers of couples are infertile, and they would rejoice to have the gift of any child to raise them as their own. There's no such thing as an unwanted child. There may be a woman who is experiencing a pregnancy that she didn't want. By the way, I hope you guys have figured this out. Sex creates human beings. It's just real simple. If you don't want to be pregnant, don't have sex. The two go together. Yeah, one of these things, you know, that's like, this is peanut butter and jelly. This is how this happens. By the way, abstinence works 100% of the time. And also, uh, let's suppose, and it's true no one wants the child. That's the one in the child of choice. Yes. Maybe <clears throat> yeah, so here's the issue then, is, is that the worth of a human being is based upon, in this argument, based upon how what somebody gives to that child. You're worth less, I'm going to kill you, you are a child I want when I want you, so you have value. Note that what God's law tells us is that the worth of a human being is not dependent upon anybody's feelings toward that human being. The worth of a human being is based upon the value that God has placed on that human being. That's outside of us, outside of our feelings. So the idea then is is that this is one of the wonderful things about God's law. It gives us an objective standard by which we can rightly judge, and it comes from outside of us. Now, for instance, if you don't understand how God's law works, then how do you determine what is good as opposed to what is evil? Is good and evil based upon whether or not you can get 51% of the population to agree with what you believe is good versus evil. And you'll note that good versus evil, if you look at it in that sense, takes on different hues and different emphases in different countries. For instance, in the Netherlands, where we have some of our Aletheans, in the Netherlands, euthanasia is being practiced. And I'm not talking about young children in China. That's not euthanasia. Euthanasia is is the active killing of somebody. It's called mercy killing, but I mean that's like putting your dog down. And the fifth commandment fifth commandment does not allow for this. So we sit there and say, well, in this community they've decided this is right. In our community we've decided this is right. And when you get onto that slippery slope, the immediate question that should come to people's mind is, well, the German people decided that Jews had no value and exterminated six million of them. Who are we to say that what they did was wrong? How do we say that what they did was wrong? Is it just because we won the war? That's how the Nazi war criminals argued at Nuremberg. The only reason why we are on trial and you're the ones judging us is because you won the war, they argued. One of the U.S. Huh? Uh, Might doesn't make right. Might does not determine right or wrong. And so one of the U.S. attorneys... You know, at Nuremberg basically said, no, sir, no, sir. You are on trial because you have committed crimes against humanity and you've objectively broken the eternal law of God. And that, it, without God's law coming from outside of us, telling us what is right or wrong, because of our sinful nature and our fallenness, what ends up happening is, is that right and wrong starts to become something that's movable. I mean, you think of the savages in Papua New Guinea. They practiced cannibalism for years. 
Are we to say that that's wrong? I've got a question, and this is always, I've always wondered this. You just got done saying the laws of humanity, or the nature of humanity. Is that God's law? When you say, when you use the word humanity, uh-huh. is that referring to God's law? In a way, yes. Let me explain. You'll note that despite some of the differences in society, for the most part, every nation punishes those who murder, punishes those who steal, punishes, you know, just name, you know, just go through the Ten Commandments and you sit there and go, I know countries that have laws against this, including our own. This has to do with the fact that Scripture in Romans chapters 1 and 2 reveals that God's law is written on our hearts. So the category that falls into in, in kind of the broader theological discussion, we call that natural law. Natural law where we see in even pagans them having an understanding of God's law even though it's never been taught to them. They just know murder is bad and stuff like that. So it's, kind of, it's intuitive. God has written his law on the hearts of all of us. So that would be humanity. So humanity has God's law written on their hearts. So that's God's law, and we, that particular category is called natural law. And there are, there are really good Lutheran theologians and guys who specialize in natural law who make the argument that when it comes to like a, a representative republic like ours, that Christians would do better to make arguments using natural law rather than biblical arguments using the Bible. Yes, it's still, it's still, it's still, it's still God's law. And, and here, I, I made this point a couple of weeks ago, and I'll kind of make it again. If you didn't have God's law written on your heart, would any of us watch the news on, at night? You don't watch the news. I, personally, I gave it up a while ago. And I am so much happier. Okay. But there are those who, you know, they, they have one of the, you know, one of the news channels on all the time. The news, it, it, it assumes, Every news broadcast assumes the law of God written on our hearts. Does, they don't know it, but I mean, so you'll, you'll hear a story. In Crookston today, a two-year-old was, uh, has gone missing, and they found her body you know, down by the river. And we all go, oh, that's terrible, that's awful, that's just, ah! And why do we feel that way? Because we all know that an innocent child has been murdered, and that's bad. And we're scandalized by it, and we feel terrible for the family that goes through it. Or, or a politician. I mean, right now it's like raining Hollywood stars and politicians. <laughs> He's just like, wake up, who's, whose turn is it tomorrow? You know, it's kind of a reckoning. So you'll note then that would, would we care about Harvey Weinstein or, or the senator from Minnesota or whatever if we didn't have God's law written on our heart? For instance, do cows care? that Harvey Weinstein behaved like he did. They, they care less. They aren't scandalized by this. And there are Yes, but see, that takes, that actually takes, you have to kind of burn your conscience. You have to sear it. Yeah, you have to sear your conscience. And, and here's, this is coming back to our sermon today, that you, if you remember from the Isaiah text, that melting in our iniquities, that sin itself, ever-increasing appetite for sin, is a form of God's punishment. And so you'll note that when somebody commits a sin for the first time, and they've really crossed a line, like this is the first time a fellow has hit his wife, or the first time a wife has cheated on her husband, or whatever, there's huge guilt that goes along with that. But once you've crossed that threshold, the second time is a lot easier. And then it just gets easier and easier and easier after that. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at fire Christian. We come back to the balance of today's lesson as we consider the, the further magnitude, depth, implications regarding thou shalt not murder. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website. You'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to believe that 
you you are your brother's keeper, and that not murdering your brother also implies taking care of your brother's bodily needs. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. I think we're up on Patreon now. You can go to patreon.com forward slash pirate Christian. Uh, joining our crew or supporting us on Patreon makes it so that we have a steady base of income that uh, we can rely on month after month in order to pay our bills, and we are we're going to be incurring new expenses as we launch out uh, with Pirate Productions uh, at the beginning of the year. So this would be a good time for you to join our crew. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of today's lesson as we look at the further implications regarding the commandment that says, Thou shalt not murder. Here we go. And this is, this is the ever-increasing nature of, of how sin dominates us. And then you see it, you know, you see it in you know, like behavior, alcoholics and drug users and things like this, to where at some point they are so consumed by their sin that it literally dominates their entire life. The person who hardens themselves against God's law, that hardening results in an increasing hardening and an increasing magnitude of sin. Let me show it to you from Scripture so you can kind of see how it works. Romans chapter 1 is our chapter, and you can kind of see this ever-increasing thing on sin. We're going to start at verse 18 and watch what happens. Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness, listen to what they do, suppress the truth. Who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The picture there, you know, I, I like to use this illustration, the picture there is of a person who's just smoked a cigarette down to the butt, thrown it on the ground, and then smashes it with their foot. That's the suppression that's going on. You take God's law and you just kind of do this with it. Suppressing the truth is a dangerous thing to do. Very dangerous. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, they have all been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God... So you're going to know, everybody knows that God exists. There's no such thing as an atheist. God does not believe in atheists. Well, here's the thing. Atheists, I mean, have you ever noticed? They spend an extremely bizarre, obsessive amount of time studying about how God doesn't exist. I mean, do you know anybody that spends, who's obsessing about proving that Buddha is false and doesn't exist? Or that... Do you see anybody, I mean, do you see all these Santa Claus atheists every Christmas say, Santa doesn't exist, don't believe in Santa, stop believing. Nobody does this, right? Why do they obsess about God? And more specifically, why do they obsess about Jesus? That's the God that really upsets them. Hmm. Uh-huh. You, you note this. They, 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 they can care less about Allah. They can care less about Buddha. They can care less about Shiva or Vishnu. But man, you start talking to them about Jesus, they come unglued. They really do. Huh. As Shakespeare said, thou protesteth too much. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, that is lesbianism, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, that's homosexuality, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So you can see in there the ever-increasing, consuming nature of sin. I'm going to keep reading, though, because this is an important text. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So you note the nature of the law. Just because you have the law doesn't mean you're righteous. You sit there and go, you're a sinner, And just remember, when you point that one finger at the sinner, there's how many more pointing back at you? That's kind of the point. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that somehow you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? Notice that. What is the definition of repentance? Contrition and sorrow, even terror for sin, and the belief that God forgives, forgives even you. So you'll note then, the law itself cannot work repentance. It has to be both law and gospel. So the law of God comes to us, convicts us, terrorizes us, makes us sorrowful for our sins, and then the gospel comes around, and you know, it's God kindness that leads you to repentance because repentance requires both terror and comfort you get it but because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when god's judgment will be revealed he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality He will give eternal life, which, by the way, is the fruit of faith and repentance. For those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath, more than wrath, fury. I do not want to know what the fury of God looks like, yet alone experience it firsthand being thrown at me, if you would. There will be tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bears witness, their conflicting thoughts excuse or even accuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So you'll note then that this is the text, Janet, that answers your question. So even unbelievers have the law of God written on their hearts. That law of God is still the same law. That we all have. Any scriptural reference when it comes to repentance that supports the concept of penance? Are we talking about the Roman Catholic concept? Well, yes, and I mean, it's kind of practiced as a Protestant. 
I can't think of a text off the top. Well, actually, I can. Let me give you one. I just, there is, but if, if we're going to talk about biblical penance then. If you're, going to, if you're going to define biblical penance correctly, the law convicts you of your sin, the gospel comforts you of the forgiveness of sins, and then, only then, is there amendment of life. Amendment of life is the fruit of repentance. And you can see it in one particular fellow. Let me find him real quick. Luke 19 is our text. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up a what? Sycamore tree. That's how the song goes. He was a chief tax collector. He wasn't a tax collector. He was like the chief of the tax collectors. He's like the chieftain of the whole tribe of tax collectors, which means he's a rotten, stealing, dirty thief, scumbag, who's oppressed all of the people of of Jericho and has made himself very wealthy in doing so. And he's a complete traitor as well because he's a Jew who has decided to go to work and be employed by the evil Roman Empire. So he was seeking to see who Jesus was because he'd heard about him. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For as he was about to pass that way, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but I want you to consider this. In an honor culture and in the ancient world, to have a meal with somebody, that's like you saying, I love you, you and I. It's it's a big statement that Jesus is doing here. And this is the last person Jesus should be eating with. Huh? Oh, yeah. And despised and rightly so. So Jesus honors him by saying he's going to eat at his house, which is a way of pardoning him. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Of course, I always like to point out, Jesus had no choice but to eat with sinners every single night, unless he wanted to eat by himself. I had invited Jesus to my home he would have been eating with a sinner. They grumbled, said, he's eating with a sinner. And watch this. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it to fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. So note, Christ is saying he's forgiven. Since he also was the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So salvation is a gift given. Repentance is sorrow for sin, trust in the mercy of God, and then true repentance leads to amendment of life. And so you can see all of these here. Christ has forgiven him. And so in the truest sense of the word, he recognizes that as a sinner, he has done things that he ought not to do. And as the fruit of his repentance, he's going to restore those whom he's defrauded, with interest, he's going to make right what he's done wrong. Well, that's, the penance. that's the penance. Now, here's the thing: is if you sit there and say to you know you're not forgiven until you fix this, that's not a true absolution, and penance becomes the work that you get that you do in order to earn and merit forgiveness. If you being forgiven desire to do right and to do good to your neighbor and to restore what you've taken from them. That's the fruit of repentance, and that's because you are forgiven. Yeah, restitution. So, if, so I mean, if, if one of you came to me and said, you know, Pastor, you know, I, years ago I went on to one of these websites, and they were telling me that, uh, that I didn't have to really tru- truly pay my taxes, and the Constitution didn't require me to do so, and so I haven't paid my taxes for 10 years. This is, this is the conversation that we're going to have. And again, this is a hypothetical. This is the conversation we're going to have. The conversation is going to begin with, we're going to go up there, we're going to take two chairs, and you're going to confess this sin before God. And the confession is going to go along the lines of, Lord God, I have 
not done what your word commands me to do. I have not paid my taxes. I am sorry. Please forgive me. That's the first part of the conversation, and that's that person talking to God. Now, as a pastor, I'm listening in on the conversation. It's kind of like a party line. And once, once the confession is made, my requirement is to speak on behalf of Christ, and what's my word? I forgive you all of your sins. They hear the absolution. Full stop. Now that you are forgiven for tax evasion, what's your next move? Better start getting those tax returns in and paying Uncle Sam what I owe him. If you don't do that, are you truly penitent? No, you're not. You see it? You're not forgiven because you make restitution. You make restitution because you are forgiven. Law and Gospels dictates that. This is what Zacchaeus did. What happens is in the penance system, the man-made version of penance, what ends up happening is, is that those churches that still have ab, you know, confession and absolution, but they've brought penance in, absolution will, is, is withheld until the pastor or the priest is satisfied that the penitent is sorry enough and things like this. That's not, that's not an absolution. And I'm sorry, they did not. When I graduated seminary and they made me a pastor and all this kind of stuff, they did not give me those cosmic peepers where I can look into your heart you know, so I can tell whether or not you're sorry enough. I, they didn't give it to me, so I don't have it. So there's no way for me to look into your heart to figure this out. Is it hurt? Is it against the Bible? But euthanasia, I can kind of see why some people find that attractive. If you have a fatal, incurable disease, uh-huh. you have a choice that are live in excruciating pain, or be so drugged up you don't know what's going on around you. Uh huh. So that's how you practice it in your family. Got it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is where this is where it's important to make distinctions, and where we'll, we will make the distinction when it comes to somebody who is terminally ill, and they have passed that point, that threshold where medicine no longer will be able to offer any kind of a cure. All medical procedures at this point will not result in you getting better, you being able to sustain your life at all, and the only thing that those medical procedures or invasive technologies are doing is keeping you alive, whereas if they were not being employed, nature would run its course and you'd be with Christ. So, in a, so you make a distinction between euthanasia is active. Euthanasia is the active killing of a human being to, quote, end their suffering, which is, Bubba, get the shotgun. That's active. Whereas, as Christians, we can say, all of these measures are only keeping me alive, and if we just take the plug out, then nature's going to run its course. That's not euthanasia. Yeah. Plus, you're draining your family's finances. They're going to be broke. Just make sure you have Obamacare, right? (laughs) (laughs) You sound skeptical. All right. Yeah, no, I, I understand. So, as Christians, we have to understand that our days are in God's hands. And we, we must understand that even at the end of life, if the end of our life is months and months of pain and suffering, physical pain and suffering, then we pray for good medical care to ease that, but that's the cross that we bear as we get to the end of our life. What if that person is not able to make that decision and the family, the, the caregivers, have to make that decision to pull the plug, not to pull the plug? I, I can tell you this, it's going to be tough to do it, number one. Even if they have a DNR. I mean, the medical professionals are really slow on that because they don't want to be sued. Well, their job is, unless a family member is there and actually does it, doesn't hold up the So, again, the, we have to make the distinction between active versus passive. Passive is stop these procedures because they're keeping... 
a cor- me from being a corpse, and without them I would become one quickly. As opposed to active is a, an active is a lethal injection. That, that, you see the difference? Yeah. We you understand that real euthanasia is not passive; it's active. Say goodbye to everybody, and then they put something into the IV solution, and you're gone. It's the act of killing of a human being, and that and that's a different thing. There's some states in the U.S. that that have this now, and I it, it wouldn't surprise me if in our lifetime, that just like with abortion and homosexual marriage, that euthanasia will be forced on us, every state in this nation eventually. <laughs> no, pull the plug is one thing. Yeah, mom, never liked the way you told me to clean my room. Goodbye. <laughs> but the DNR is on the, isn't that? Yeah, a DNR should keep them from plugging it in, but sometimes they're going to plug you in anyway. It's really a legal mess, and I'm, I'm a pastor, not a. A medical guy or an attorney. Yeah, I can already think of a situation where I've been asked to give my two cents to medical professionals regarding the care of a human being. Uh, yeah, and that's where you've got to understand this, is that the medical community oftentimes looks to pastors and religious leaders for ethical guidance because um, the one thing you learn really quickly about medical technology is that the power to have something or to do something doesn't give you the ethical guidance on how to properly use it. Those are, those are real difficult decisions. Yep. Yep. Now, real quick, in talking about then thou shalt not murder, we'll kind of end with this thought for today, is that suicide is self-murder and it is forbidden by the fifth commandment. You shall not murder includes do not murder yourself. Now, that being said, it is important for us to recognize that suicide is not the unpardonable sin. And I will say this, in my lifetime I have seen Christians and even pastors be tempted to do some pretty stupid, awful, selfish sins, including taking their own life. It is it, it turns your whole world upside down when a pastor you know has taken their own life. And I'll say this, when that happens, we always go back to their baptism and their confession of faith. The unpardonable sin is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That being the case, we should expect to see those who have succumbed to the temptations of the devil and boneheadedly done the most selfish thing you can possibly do, and that's take your own life. Christ has even bled and died for those sins. I have a very close friend of mine who took his own life. My son, when he was in the Navy, the pastor that was his pastor took his own life. And this is the kind of stuff, it's, it, it's a wrecking ball in people's lives when that happens. And yet, when that happens, we are not to talk about the baptized or those who have had faith, and we know that they've had faith, we are not to talk about them as if they have gone to hell. So we, we bury them as Christians. We do not bury them off in some potter's field you know, and treat them as if they're, they're lost. But this is no justification then for taking your own life. Important to note. Did you raise your hand there, Mike? We had a neighbor here. And um, the funeral was held in Melbourne School Day. I, the Lord of my grave, remembered his pastor as he basically said, this young man in this auditorium was filled with his classmates, with the neighbors, younger kids, older kids. The gymnasium was full. Wow. And that pastor made that statement and the hush and the anguish that came out of his high school kids never forget that. Wow. It was horrible. That's when it's okay to interrupt the service. 
And then we had to walk from the school to the community center. And the kids were having such a horrible time to understand what happened. No, that's a disservice. I mean, seriously, I mean, I would have been tempted if I had been there. And I don't attend things like that, not out of uniform. I would attempt, I'm sorry, but pastor here doesn't know what he's saying, but I'll be taking over the sermon from here. That's the dereliction of duty. The pastors are not the judges of who goes to heaven or hell. It's Christ. And the job of a pastor at a funeral is to preach Christ. Yeah. So the job of a pastor at a funeral is to preach Christ. And if the person who is being buried is an unbeliever, then the pastor is to preach Christ. Period. Because the sermon's for the benefit of those who are listening, not for the benefit of the person who's gone on. Mm, Very tragic. Sorry to hear that. I can definitively say that Scripture's clear. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. Not. It's terrible. One of the most selfish things that somebody could possibly do. I'm pretty convinced that if it weren't for the fact that I will not have a sinful nature when I get to heaven that if it were not for that, when I get to heaven, when I see my friend, I I would punch him in the face. I mean, as hard as I could. Do you know what you put us through because of this? The, The pain that I have had to go through because of his suicide is, it's not measurable. Yeah. So from time to time, during my prayers, I'll say to Jesus... And say hi to so-and-so for me. I won't say his name here because I, I don't, that's not mine to say. But And let him know that if it wasn't for the fact I didn't have a sinful nature when I get to see him, I'd punch him in the face. The situation of someone taking their own life, at that point in time, he is gone. Yeah. He has... By no means able to repent and be forgiven uh-huh. of his sins after that point. No longer conscience cannot do that. Is your right. is your forgiveness, is your absolution based upon your ability to remember and to ask God to forgive you for each and every one of your sins? Whereas Christ bled and died for all of them. Yeah, yeah. Christ has bled and died for all of your sins. And I'll I'll be blunt. Scripture is very clear that we don't even know the full magnitude of our own sinfulness. We don't. So it's not a requirement of forgiveness that you remember and confess all of your sins. Okay? I had to bring that up. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But also, God knows our heart as we're driving home. Yeah. We're not necessarily. Well, no. Right. If by heart you're talking about our faith in Christ for forgiveness, right? That's correct. So the idea is is that we continue to trust in Christ. And this is not depend, you know, you know, our salvation. So, you know, let's say you you two are, you know, decided you're going, you're going to go into town for lunch. Don says something that just gets under your skin. It, it happens with married couples. I don't know if you've noticed this from time to time. And so Don says something gets under your skin, and you're kind of aggravated, and you give him a sharp word, right? And maybe in your anger you went too far, and and you realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then 
bam, you get hit by one of the, the beat hauler trucks, and you're now before Christ. And Jesus says, well, yeah, you're baptized, you were absolved today, and all that kind of stuff, but you went too far in your anger against Don, so yeah, you're gone. <laughs> That's not how that works. Not at all. Yeah, exactly. Christ has died for all of our sins, so including that one you commit right before you die. Peace to you, brothers and sisters. We'll catch you next week, Lord willing. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>